Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. As I said, we've been in a message series entitled Marriage and Sexuality. This is the last of the series, part 11. And uh, we've uh, talked about a whole variety of of uh, topics in this particular series, including the what the um, the institution of marriage, and we've talked about the mystery of marriage, marriage and sex, and then we talked about pornography and premarital sex and homosexuality and abortion, and adultery and divorce and and singleness and all kinds of topics. And this week we're ending it and capping it off with a message on forgiveness. Uh, this topic is so broad, I cannot possibly address all angles and issues, nor can I expand on all components of forgiveness that I may mention in the message. So today, we're going to zero in on just one aspect, and that's forgiving others. We need to forgive in marriage, but we also need to forgive in all of life. So this message applies to all of us, whether we are married or not. Now, what kinds of things, uh, we're just going to summarize a couple of things and define what uh, forgiveness is and, and what kinds of things need forgiveness before we get to the whole issue of, and this is where we're going to spend time, about being willing to forgive and the ability to forgive. First of all, what kinds of things require forgiveness? Well, bad things that people have done to us, such as physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse and so on, good things uh, need to be forgiven, that, we're, that people neglected to do for us, we need to forgive them as well. Uh, for example, parents uh, didn't make you feel loved or special, or they minimized your fears, or perceived hurts would be another one. Sometimes people hurt us, but we know that they didn't actually mean to do that. You know, you're talking to someone who keeps looking at their phones, so you feel they don't care about you. You feel rejection. So you tell yourself it's no big deal, but the next time you see them, you, you don't want to talk to them or you feel guarded. Why? Because you're actually harboring the offense and hurt that they caused. So now, in most cases of forgiveness, especially in the good things missed and, and the perceived hurts, you don't actually need to tell the offender uh, that you are forgiving them. Okay? So we're just... Uh, we're just we're just glazing over this. This could be an entire message of its own. Here's what forgiveness doesn't mean, and this could be its own message as well. No consequences. Uh, it doesn't mean that. If somebody has sexually abused somebody, there is a consequence before the law. It doesn't mean unearned trusting. Trust is always earned over time, and it also doesn't mean forgetting. You can't forget the incident, but the lie in the incident which is like a thorn, which creates pain, can be removed, which is what we call inner healing. Here's what forgiveness does mean on the flip side of the coin. It means permanently forgiving uh, all debt and bringing bal the balance to zero. They owe you nothing, not even an apology or admission. It means permanently forfeiting the right of reproach. You won't bring it up again, nor avoid them when you see them. It means permanently foregoing all expressions of private and public judgment. You won't run them down behind their back, or in front of their back for that matter. Now let's go on and talk about 
having just established some, uh, some quick guidelines and parameters of what we're talking about, uh, now I want to discuss this matter of willingness to forgive. There's three things that will motivate us to be willing to forgive. The first one is that we need to be humble enough to understand that we also don't deserve, yet need, forgiveness. It's not just the, the person who's offended us, but we also need forgiveness. Isn't it true, church? The reason we don't want to forgive someone is because we want to punish them for what they did to us. Now, it is true that everyone in this room has been hurt by others. How many of you would say you've been hurt by others? Raise your hand. Yep, see? What is equally true is that everyone in this room has also hurt others. So we all need forgiveness and we all need to forgive others. If we desire to exact punishment from others, then we deserve no less. Here's the second thing that will help us in this matter of motivating us or moving towards a willingness. We're actually warned in Scripture about the consequences if we don't forgive. It affects our physical and emotional mental health. For example, uh, first, uh, first out of five, when you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, you're consumed with those thoughts and it will exhaust you emotionally. Scientific studies show that these negative emotions release deadly toxins, uh, negatively affecting your physical and your emotional and your mental health. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down while you are still what, church? Angry. Exactly right. Secondly, it affects us spiritually. In that same passage uh, where, that we just read, or that I just read, he adds in verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold is the word. That means the devil has an opening into your life. If you don't forgive, he has an opening into your life that allows him to, to keep attacking you. Years ago, uh, Stefan used an illustration. He talked about wasps coming into a house. Now, you can sit in your easy chair, and every time a wasp comes and wants to sting you, you can, you can try to swat it and kill it. And you kill one. And then a minute later, another one comes. And you swat another one. And you kill that one. And then you swat another one. And you kill that one. And another one. And another. That's one way to take care of the wasp. But the real way is to do what? Close the hole in the screen. Isn't it true? I think that's a tremendous analogy for exactly what Paul was saying when he talked about a foothold. The devil has a foothold in your life. That means it's an opening into your life. And you can keep struggling with one attack after another, or you can just plain close the door. And that's what he's talking, uh, talking about. There's a second spiritual cost there. Uh, many people don't sense if we don't forgive God, sin separates us from the presence of God and we don't sense his presence. And he doesn't hear and answer our prayers. In, uh, in Isaiah, the prophet said, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not, what do you think the word is? So that he will not hear. That's what the prophet said. So it has spiritual consequences. Our prayers won't be answered. Uh, and uh, we know Peter talked about that, even about uh, a husband's relationship with his wife, and we looked at, at that in one of the uh, me messages in this series. 
It breaks, number three, it breaks relationships. Number four, it may determine your children's eternal life. Think about that. It may jeopardize or determine your children's eternity. Think about that for a moment. Years ago, many years ago, in fact, decades ago, Fran and I were attending a particular church, and uh, wonderful people, and uh, uh, lovely people, and uh, uh, the church leadership came to us and said, um, we, uh, we want you serving in the church. And we said, well, we would like to. Uh, I'd been called into ministry, had been pastoring already. And, uh, and then they said, but we notice that you're not a member yet. And we hadn't been attending that long, and so we were fully intending to become a member. And so we said, okay, well, we'd be happy to do it. But in the ensuing discussion, they discovered, it, they weren't probing us, but we were just having a nice little discussion, and they discovered that we didn't hold to a particular belief that they had. In this particular case, it was pacifism. And uh, we, we, we didn't hold the exact same view, and then they said, well, then you can't become a member. And if you can't be a, become a member, then you can't serve, which is a problem for me when you're called into ministry. And so uh, we, we said, okay, well, that's fine. In the meantime, our children were teenagers, and they began to ask us, they quizzed us. They said, you know, you raised us, and you always said church is important. You said church membership is important. You should be, belong to a church, and you should be involved, but you're not. And uh, they were, you know, I think they were wondering if we were hypocritical or something. We said, well, we looked at each other, Fran and I did, and we thought, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Because we didn't want to tell them that there was an issue with the church leadership, that we had a, a disagreement. We didn't talk about it. We still loved them. They had a right. Don't they have a right as a church to believe what they want to believe? Yes or no? The answer is yes. We were the ones coming in if we had a different belief system. It was up to us to submit, not for them to turn around and change the church for us. So, uh, we, <laughs> what do you say to your teenagers now? Well, we had to finally give them the right. We had to give them uh, the answer as to what what had happened, and immediately they began to uh, respond negatively. And as soon as uh, I saw that, I, I talked with Fran. We had this discussion. I said, "We cannot leave this church until." Our teenagers know that we harbor absolutely no offense. They were taking up offense now for us because they, love our, they loved us. That was, that, that's not altogether bad. And, uh, and so we waited and we continued to explain that they had a right to believe what they did and, that they, and our teenagers could see that we were not angry. We did not talk negatively about the, the pastor or the church leadership or the church. And once they were settled and, and everything was fine, then we quietly slipped away. Now, listen, that's really important. The devil knows that if he tells you that he's going to take your children, you would be alert to what he's doing. So he hides below the surface, waiting until you're offended. Then he sets the trap, distorting the truth, telling you that it's wrong for you to be taken advantage of. And when you bite on it, he's got you. And it can turn, many children have been turned away from the faith because a parent, a Christian parent, became offended in the church at somebody in the church or at the leadership or at the church in general, and they became offended, wouldn't forgive, and that turned the child against the church and ultimately Christ, and they left the church and Christ. That's very sad. 
That should motivate us to forgive, shouldn't it? Here's a fifth one. It may jeopardize your own, your own eternal life. Using a parable, Jesus taught us a sobering lesson on unforgiveness. He said, uh, and, he, and this is what he, the story he told, a servant who owed the equivalent of, you know, $11 billion today to a kingdom. This servant was brought before the king who commanded that he and his family be sold and payment made toward the debt. Falling to his knees, this servant begged for mercy, and the king had pity on him and forgave him the entire debt. That's found, this uh, parable is found in Matthew 18. Yet he found this particular servant who was forgiven, this forgiven servant found a fellow servant who owed him pocket change. So he grabbed his throat and demanded instant repayment. Can you believe it? That's an unbelievable story. Such ingratitude. So when his fellow servants, when the fellow servants of this forgiven servant witnessed this, they were deeply grieved and reported it to the king who then summoned him and said the following. And we'll pick up in verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And then Jesus brought home the lesson from the parable. And this is what he continued by saying. So also my heavenly Father, which will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus is talking to believers here and says that if they flatly refuse to forgive, they will jeopardize their own eternity. That's serious business. Now, uh, note uh, just for a second here. Jesus is not talking here about someone who's just a brand new believer and doesn't know anything about this. He, he's not talking about someone who wants, uh, wants to forgive but doesn't know how to or someone who is working through an offense or praying to forgive or wants to forgive. He's not talking about that kind of person. He's talking about somebody who flatly says, I will not forgive him. Not ever. I will not do it. Then God says, then neither will I forgive you. And you're going to live with the consequences for eternity, separated from God. But Jesus, uh, 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 and that's what he's talking about. You want assurance of salvation? Forgive. <laughs> that's one of the things. Now, uh, somebody may be sitting here and says, I don't believe that a believer can lose their salvation. We're not going to get into a big discussion about it. But Jesus said in other passages like Matthew 24, he talks about those who fall away from the faith. You can't fall away from something you didn't have. Isn't it true? Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the same thing. They've tasted of the spiritual life, and then they fall away in Hebrews chapter 6. But even, I'm going to grant you that even if you don't buy into that, and you say it just proves that they never were saved in the first place, the result is exactly the same. Then the reason you don't forgive is because you're not saved in the first place. In which case you end up in the same place, separated from God, in a place called hell. Is that true? Either way, you, either way you go with this, you end up at the same place. So we see the, the motiva uh, motivations, and there's a third one here. We're commanded, uh, not only is there a warning, not only are we to have humility to recognize that we ourselves need forgiveness, but third, 
we are commanded to forgive. In uh, Luke chapter 17, this we're going to be spending much of our time now, verses 3 to 4, Jesus said to his disciples, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must what, church? Forgive him. Now see the disciples' reaction to this teaching. It says in Luke chapter, uh, verse 5, the very next verse says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now we've got to stop for a moment. You notice the little word, the little Greek word I put before that, it's conjunction and can be translated and or but. And that's very important because in your Bibles, in, in most or all of your Bibles, you'll have a, a new paragraph starting there with a new heading. They've completely separated. Jesus says, forgive. The next piece now talks about faith. And then the next piece talks about a parable. And it looks like there's three different topics being talked about, but they're not. They're all related. And one of the ways I can prove it is this little conjunction uh, chi, which connects it to what was just said about forgiveness. So you could translate it, but the apostle said to the Lord. In other words, he says, you've got to forgive him seven times. But the apostle said to the Lord, well, then you've got to increase our faith. You see what's happening? And it's, a very, uh, it's very sad that many of our translations have not translated and picked up on that because we, uh, we miss a couple of additional things that Jesus wants to say about forgiveness here. So uh, I'm going to come back to verse 6 in just a moment, but I want to go on to the parable starting in verse 7 to 10. So they said, well, then increase our faith. Jesus is going to say something about faith in just a minute, but then he says a second thing through a parable. There's two responses that he has. And I'll, I'll start with the second response first. He tells a parable. He says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Remember, we're talking about their culture, master-servant relationships. We don't have something like that today. Here, not in our culture. They have it in other places. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get, re uh, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you, you may eat and drink. Now, <laughs> listen to what he says next. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer for the rhetorical question is what? No, he wouldn't. Not in that culture. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. What's going on here? The disciples were upset at the hard things that Jesus was requiring of them, such as radical forgiveness. You know, somebody forgives, uh, you know, sins against me seven times, and now I'm, i got to forgive them seven times. They were upset about that kind of radical forgiveness, just like they were upset when Jesus talked about divorce. They said, you remember how upset they got about that? Here they're upset again. Um, they said, it, it, and so they demanded, well, then you have to increase our faith because such forgiveness is just too hard. We can't do this. Jesus, in his telling of this parable in response to the disciples' reaction, was, was uh, uh, his whole purpose in doing was to set the matter straight. 
He was saying to them that when a master tells you to do something, you don't need more faith. You just need to obey. <laughs> wow. That's, that's putting them in their place, wouldn't you say? Uh, instead of lipping off, as the disciples had just done, the proper thing would have been to simply say in our vernacular, yes, sir. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Um, and now we're going to now we're going to get to this matter of faith. So that's one response. He said, "You should just obey. Never mind that kind of a response to me. I'm your master. Obey." And we were singing about, "Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen." Now let's talk about the second thing: the ability to forgive others. And for that, we're going to go back to verse six. When Jesus told them they had to forgive, they responded, well, then you'll just have to give us more faith because that's impossible. But see how Jesus responded to them in verse 6. He said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and, and planted or cast into the sea and it would obey you. Jesus was saying to them that they really didn't need more faith. In fact, if all they had was a grain of real faith, like a mustard seed, they'd be able to uproot the mulberry tree and cast it into the sea. The problem was, well, or wasn't, with the quantity or amount of faith, but with the quality or kind of faith they had. Their faith was defective. Now, let's go, to, let's go back to another story of Jesus that sheds some additional light on this story, and the two together feed uh, each other somewhat. In Matthew 17, the disciples couldn't exercise the demon from a boy. Do you remember that story? And, uh, and so um, they asked Jesus why they hadn't, you know, they brought him to Jesus. We couldn't do it. Jesus cast the demon out. And then the disciples come to him and they say, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus responded in Matthew 17, 20, Because of your little faith, uh, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, <laughs> this seems confusing because he's talking about little faith, little faith. And first he says, because of little uh, your little faith, you can't. But if you had little faith, like a mustard seed, you could. You will uh, truly say, uh, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Notice, he isn't talking here about quantity or amount of faith. As far as quantity was concerned, the disciples had plenty of it. In Mark chapter 6, uh, 13, well, first of all, they stepped out by faith and tried to cast out the demon. Is that true? Yeah. Number two, Mark 6, 13 says, the disciples cast out many demons. They were very good at casting out demons. Really good at it. So it wasn't that they didn't have an amount of faith. They had no problem. Oh yeah, bring me uh, demon-possessed people. I'll take care of it. They just step out by faith and do it. Except this time it didn't work. What Jesus is doing here is contrasting two different tiny faith seeds. Their little faith, it's a human kind of faith. He says, your little faith, which he calls little, or another word would be inferior, versus, and notice he says, but if, that's the contrast word there, if, 
instead, that's the contrast, versus a small but powerful faith seed, even though it's like a little mustard seed, that can, that can push up sidewalks. So Jesus wasn't talking about quantity, but quality or kind of faith. He was saying that if they just had a tiny bit of the right kind of faith, they could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Do you see what he's saying? We, 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 we mess that up when we get involved with quantities. It's not about more effort. You know, I'm, I got this gigantic faith. No, you just need a little bit of the right kind of faith, and you can do, do this. That's what he's saying. And in this case, the metaphor, the mountains, the metaphor was used to picture the authority, which was the demon. Why does Jesus say it can be tiny, so long as it is the right kind? You may be scared to death to do what God is telling you to do, just a little kernel. But if it's the right kind of divine faith that's implanted in you, even though you're scared to death, you take that one little step and obey, and it happens. On the other hand, you can be brimming with confidence in your ministry experience and abilities, yet nothing changes in your cell group, your ministry at work, your church, or your denomination. Nothing. You can have tons, huge amounts of your own kind of faith, Faith in your experience and your abilities. And it changes nothing. You see, the power to exercise demons wasn't inherent in the disciples. The power to renew and transform others, your church, your denomination, isn't inherent in us either. Or small groups or family or marriage. So how do you get that kind of divine faith that moves mountains? Well, in Mark's telling of the story, he included another remark that Jesus made in answering his disciples. He said, he talked about the faith, but then he added one more thing. This kind comes out by nothing else but by prayer. We've talked about that before. But what does prayer have to do with it? In the Old Testament, when the Israelites took the Ark of the Tabernacle into battle, God's presence literally went with them as it hovered above the Ark of the, of the Presence, Right? It went into battle and he scattered his enemies as we've talked about it. It happened in Jericho. That's why the walls fell down, not because they, they did anything. And whenever God went with them, they were always victorious. Always. You and I are now that ark or temple. That's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6. You are the temple. Your body is the temple of God and if his presence dwells in you, then when you walk into your marriage and into your family, into your cell group and into your ministry at work or into your church or your denomination, God's presence goes with you and he scatters his enemies. C.S. Lewis, uh, I like to, you say, but how do you get that presence in? Well, it's in prayer. That's really what, how, how, how you can obey the command to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that. You say, but how do you do that? Do you go to a Holy Spirit conference? Is that how you do it? Well, you can. But can you go to a Holy Spirit conference every single day? Huh? So how are you going to do it? You go, you go into his presence through prayer. James says, draw nigh to God and God will draw nigh to you. 
When you go to him and approach him in prayer, isn't it true? Suddenly you begin to sense his presence. You enjoy and all kinds, he starts to speak to you, all kinds of things. C.S. Lewis put it this way, good metaphor picture that he had was a city square fountain. You know those massive ones like they have in Europe? And you just go downwind of, the, of that big fountain and you just get soaked or Niagara Falls. Isn't it true? Drawing nigh to God is like that. You get soaked with his presence. And when you go out into battle as the ark, the enemies scatter. But his presence will not only go with you uh, within that, uh, uh, but God will not just tell you the what, but the how and the when. His presence will only go with you within that context. It's not just doing whatever you want. God says, I want you to do this, and now you do it however you want and whenever you want it. No. Uh, among the instructions given to the Israelites when, taking, when they were taking Jericho was that they were not allowed to take any booty for themselves. Do you remember that? Not only were, did he tell them about how many times they're supposed to go around Jericho, he told them, and, and any of the booty, anything that you get, is all devoted to me. But Achan didn't obey. He took a little for himself, hid it under the tent, so when the Israelites went to the next city, the city of Ai, they thought this was going to be a piece of cake. It was much smaller than Jericho. And they had no problem in Jericho. But when they went, God didn't go with them. Because they didn't follow specific instructions there. So the divine faith that you will need to uproot the impossible mulberry tree of bitterness in your life. And that's what the mulberry tree metaphor is about, you can't, you can't in yourself pull that bitterness out by yourself. It will need to include, the only way you're going to be able to do it is in prayer and getting his presence. But the second thing is listening prayer for his rhema words. And uh, that's, uh, that's uh, really important. Uh, let's just uh, toggle back a little bit here. Jesus remonstrated them in that passage. He said that if they had faith like a mustard seed, they could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would. He's saying that if you have divine faith, you can say to the unforgiveness and bitterness uh, rooted in your heart, be uprooted, and it would be gone. But remember, it's not the amount of faith, it's the kind of faith, the quality of faith. So how do we get that divine faith that's needed to uproot bitterness from your hearts? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through, not the, as our translations say, which is a definite article, but a, we've talked about this before, rhema, word from Christ. First notice its source. It comes from Christ. It's not self-manufactured. Second, it's a word, it's a word from Christ. In this context, Paul says that you can't come to, uh, to saving faith, for, uh, for example, without a rhema word spoken to you from Christ into your heart. And that's how God draws us to Christ. He calls us, John chapter uh, 8, verse 44, you can't come to the Father all by yourself without God speaking into you and drawing uh, you to himself. Is that true? Is that what the Word teaches? Church? Amen? By the way, the word amen is, uh, the pe people did that through the Old Testament and New Testament. That's a biblical thing. 
So you can, you can do that. Amen? Amen? Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that's very, very good. That's why people say things like, God was speaking to me when I got saved. I, I, I felt like he was speaking to me. There's a second application of needing God's divine rhema word, not just his presence, but a specific word, and we find it in spiritual warfare. Remember that God's weapons for warfare have divine power, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. One of the weapons is the sword of the Spirit. Now, what is the sword? He talks about the weapons of our warfare, but what is the sword of the Spirit? And he tells us in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the, what, no, ah, word, rhema, word of God. Same thing that Paul had said in Romans. To the Romans, he's now saying over here, to the Ephesians, the words proceeding from God's mouth have inherent power in them. Is that true? Isaiah 55 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will, what's the word? Accomplish something. That which I purpose and, and, and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. Divine faith doesn't just help you believe about something. Divine faith that is planted in you through a word spoken, a rhema word spoken into your heart, accomplishes something. That's the difference. That's why you can try to root out bitterness year after year after year and nothing happens. And then God speaks and deposits a word of faith, a rhema word, into your soul. And suddenly, you have the ability to root the mulberry tree of bitterness and cast it into the sea. Is that exciting? <laughs> Is that encouraging? Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's important. So what are the issues that he wants to... So we need both, the prayer for his presence, but we also need to listen in prayer for his rhema word. So what are the issues he wants to speak to you about your bitterness? The, uh, here's the first one. You've got to listen for what God wants to say to you about the offender. You know, for years, I tried but couldn't forgive someone for things done to me and for things that this person neglected to do for me. And I tried for years. In my mid-twenties, I learned to hear God's voice. And then 15 years ago, the Lord showed me how to receive inner healing from wounds caused by others. So one of the things he showed me about the person who offended me and hurt me was what happened to him. I knew the story, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't see it. He said his father was killed when he, was nine, uh, when he was only nine years old, and he never had a father figure out after that, through those critical teenage years. And he felt abandoned. He felt lonely. He didn't have anybody to guide him. He was upset. He was angry. He was afraid. He was alone. And so that buried itself in him. Not only that, he reminded me that the churches didn't know anything about inner healing that God offers, never mind how to hear God's voice. The church had lost its way. It had departed from the ancient paths, and so it couldn't help him or any other hurt people for that matter. And when God spoke that by his Spirit into my heart as I was listening to him, 
My bitterness was changed to compassion. Do you see that? You can try to change your thinking, but on God, until God deposits a rhema word and, and speaks to you himself, even things that you knew before, you, you cannot do what you want to do. And he changed it to compassion for him, and I lamented that I hadn't been able to learn about these things in time for him to benefit. That made me willing to forgive. Wouldn't you agree? Here's the second thing you need to listen for. For what God wants to say to you personally. God showed me that he had never left me or forsaken. Because, of, because you see, generational sins work that way. And we pass them down to our kids too. It's not just what happened to us, but then we pass them to our kids. And because of the neglect and loneliness and all those kinds of things that he experienced, it was passed down to me. And so now I always felt like I, I wasn't uh, worth, uh, worthwhile and, and wasn't loved. And I was alone and all those kinds of things. M many of you have experienced those things. And this, this isn't about me. I'm trying to show you a principle. And uh, he showed me, as I was listening in prayer, that he had never left or forsaken me. Not just in theory. Not just be because the Bible verse said it. He showed me instances in my life. For example, he showed me, he gave me this incredible, joyful, uh, uh, joyful and healthy woman through whom he loved and affirmed and encouraged me. I mean, I remember an actual time with the Lord, in the Lord's presence, and he spoke to me, and, and I went out of there in tears and told my wife. I didn't realize he was, he was loving and affirming me through her. He said, that's not just her love, I gave her to you so I could love you through her. Remember I said grace is given to each one of us, for, for all of us? Is that true, church? It, it's incredible. And uh, then he showed me, at one time I was flying for a regional air carrier, and uh, he, they told me, when they saw the, how many hours I didn't have, they, they, uh, they suddenly said to me, you're never going to be a captain uh, for this airline. And I was just devastated because they, they were planning to make me a captain. Not only, but guess what happened? Four months later, not only did I become a captain, one month after that I became a captain on a bigger airplane. And there's a whole string of events like that through my life. And he showed me, he said, Ray, I've, I've never left you. I've been superintending every single step of the way, orchestrating sovereignly your entire life. And it's all fitting together. And I just went, oh my goodness, Lord. And he began to heal me. I began to realize I'm not alone. <laughs> I, everything is fine. He deposited a word into me. And when I was reading a George Miller autobiography, he interrupted me uh, to speak and reveal himself to me. I found out that George Miller was, uh, that God was speaking to him. And the church had told me that God doesn't speak anymore. And right there he began to speak to me. I was 26 years old. Not only had he never, uh, and, and it began, uh, it was the beginning of my journey of hearing his voice and walking by faith. Not only had he never neglected me or left me, he, was, he had been personally watching over every single footstep. I wept, and I wept in his presence. You have no idea how many times I've wept in his presence. Because this incredible love and joy and peace, and he just, 
You know what? He's our ultimate fulfillment, not another human being. Isn't it true? Wow. He had never neglected me. I wasn't alone. Makes you want to sing, you're a good, good father. Isn't that? Doesn't it? You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. I'm going to join the choir. <laughs> and I'm loved by you. That's what I am. That's what I am. That's what I am. Amen. Amen, Amen. Amen church? Amen. He heals you in his presence. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and shows you that, oh, my goodness. Step three, listen for how God turned the bad into something good. The third thing he began to speak to me about was that he had turned something, listen to it carefully, finitely bad and turned it into something infinitely good or eternally good. You say, what do you mean by that? He revealed that because of this hurt or wound, I really understood that so many, 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 many people are deeply wounded and need inner healing. Because of that, I was eager to find a way for people to be healed. So he showed me the way forward, and from that came the Set Free Retreat, which I wrote, and personal ministry, and the Hearing God Seminar, and eventually Empower, and whatever. The result was that thousands are experiencing hearing his voice and being healed on the inside. Suddenly you see purpose in everything. Amen? Oh, wow. The result... Uh, is, now, I want to ask this question. Is it worth it to experience a dot of struggle and pain if it results in a line or eternity of joy and praise? Jesus said it was. In Hebrews 12, he said, Who? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And Paul agreed. He said, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There is so much that God wants to accomplish in and through your struggles. And when you've allowed him to speak such divine words of faith that bring healing and joy and love, let me ask you, do you still want to punish your offender? <laughs> Church, when you've experienced that much healing and joy and confidence and love and affirmation and acceptance, do you still want to punish your offender? Yes or no? No. No. Oh, no. Not, a, not even a bit. <laughs> now, now you only, uh, not only wish to forgive, you actually want to help them. And now you actually have the ability to do just that, to root up the mulberry tree of bitterness and to cast it into the sea. And once you're at that point, then you can really help your offender. You can, number four, but this is the action you can do. Now you can pray for your offender, like Jesus said. Pray for those who mistreat you. You say, how can you do that? Oh, once you get to this point, now you can do it. Because now you have that divine faith rooted in you. And then the, the fifth thing you can do is bless your offender. Bless those who curse you. Now, I, wanna, I want you to take just one moment. And I want you to bow your heads. Yeah, go ahead and do that right now. And ask the Lord to reveal someone you have 
you're holding an offense against right now. Just do that. For some of you, that is automatic. You know who it is. For some of you, you may have forgotten or pushed it aside. But if the Holy, ask the Holy Spirit to bring up if there's anyone that you're holding an offense or hurt towards, that you're hurt by. Anyone that you need to forgive. All right, this is what we did in the other uh, two services, and we're going to do it here as well. I just want you to quickly, uh, I want you, if, the, if there's somebody that the Holy Spirit showed you that you need to forgive, I just want you to raise your hand. Go ahead, just raise it. Yeah, many of you. In the other two services, practically everybody. This is what we're going to do. Tonight, at the prayer summit, in the personal section that we always do, we're going to go through those three green steps there. We're going to listen to the Lord and let him deposit his words of faith in us that will make it possible for us to root those mulberry trees of bitterness and unforgiveness out of our lives. Is that a good idea? Would you like that? Yeah? We're going to do that during the personal section tonight. Um, because can you imagine if we had a church in this region, across the country, around the world, that modeled the forgiveness of Jesus? How, how attractive we would become. Amen? If you need prayer, you can go to the prayer room uh, right after the service. Father, thank you for speaking to us today about this matter of forgiveness as we cap off the series in which your spirit has guided and directed us. And God, continue work in our lives tonight at the prayer summit as you will be depositing words of faith that will cause us to forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.